What do inflammation and oxidative stress have in common? They're present at alarming levels in people with disorders such as Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. Conventional medicine is convinced that vitamin and antioxidant therapies don't work. But our guest, Dr. Kadar Prasad, author of Fight Parkinson's and Huntington's with Vitamins and Antioxidants, will tell us how clinical trials are designed to fail. And he gives us a specific protocol for best possible outcomes, even when there's a genetic component involved. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds, but it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast with Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. And today I'm introducing that is uh, Nikola Popovich, my <laughs> my trusty co-host and audio editor. You you beat me to the punch. <laughs> well, so to speak. Uh, anyway. Nicola will probably be on many episodes, if not all episodes going forward, because like me, he also has a family of, of young children who interrupt and show up and don't want to go to bed when it's time to go to bed. But, you know, our plan is to have him here as much as possible going forward. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be tackling a subject that has come up often uh, for me. Uh, yes, in practice, but also in just regular life. As a matter of fact, I was at a party a couple of weeks ago with a woman who had these tremors and she was vegan. She was allergic to like 500 foods. She was, I mean, like I made a dessert and she says to me, so does it have gluten in it? I was like, no. Does it have milk in it? No. Does it have strawberries in it? No. And we went down a list. <laughs> Of, of at least of at least like 20 foods and she's like really it doesn't have any of that in there and i said really so what does it have it had coconut milk tapioca uh sweet potatoes and plywood coconut <laughs> coconut sugar 
and um, just some other like root vegetables and things. I think it had a little taro. It's it's called momo cha cha. It's from it's it's from Malaysia, and I had learned about it from a friend of mine who's Malaysian or Malay. I used to work with in New York, so every once in a while I make this dessert uh, for this was in particular it was for a luau. So I was like, hey, perfect! It's you know. totally fits in and luckily i did make it because that was the first time she had been to a party since she had her own party that she was actually able to eat something because it didn't have any of what she has as allergens but you know when we were talking she's she's telling me and she looks totally deficient you know her her body seems extreme she seems very dry like super thin way more wrinkly than she should be for her age and she is saying how you know when she does eat fat you know the little bit that she gets she gets it from olive oil and this was something that i had started to notice and she's got these tremors she's shaking 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 and I have been noticing this over the years. People come to me, uh, whether it's, like I said, professionally or in uh, just, you know, in my community and, they, and they've got these tremors and they, but they're touting the super politically correct diet. Uh, most of them are on the vegetarian vegan side and they're all telling me that they consume all of this olive oil and it's so good. And I just bathe myself in olive oil. Oh, olive oil. It's so good. So, um, Today, we're going to talk to uh, our guest heretic, who is Dr. Kedar Prasad. He is a PhD in radiation biology from the University of Iowa. At least that's where he got his degree. Uh, and he has associations with several cancer uh, therapy groups. And he also has written a book called Fight Parkinson's and Huntington's with Vitamins and Antioxidants. So with that Explain to us the differences between Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. Yeah, Parkinson's disease is acquired disease, and uh, and uh, this affects the different part of the brain. For example, where there is a dopamine neuron. On the other hand, Huntington's disease is a genetic disease that you inherit from your parent, and uh, and the children at least have a fifty-fifty chance of developing Huntington disease if the parent has that particular gene defect. And uh, that gene defect is called, uh, um, is, is a technical name is a CAG, C-A-G, CAG, which codes for the uh, amino acid glutamine. So normally, this Huntington protein normally is very important for your health and for your development. But when it get, get mutated, when mutation occurs, and then they expand this CAG. So instead of, say, repeat, that generally we have in Huntington up to 35 repeats of this particular uh, glutamine amino acids in the protein. But in, in Huntington disease, it can increase up to 100 such amino acids in one protein. Whoa. Okay. And and so, so this is inherited disease. So main distinction is not only that one is acquired, and in some cases could be genetic too in Parkinson's disease, but that there is a different genes. But in Huntington, Huntington disease is always, and they uh, always, and it is also a movement disorders. It is a Zerky movement, and all kind of, and there is no cure for it. So, but main difference is. Most of the Parkinson is acquired during your lifetime. On the other hand, Huntington disease is inherited 
from your parent. Okay. And then what are the manifestations of each? I know that the Parkinson's, we, we think of the tremors mostly. What other symptoms? Yeah. I mean, tremors, you have a tremors, you have rigidity, uh, you have later on, you develop dementia and, uh, and, uh, and, and you can control. So main, main is the rigidity and, and, and tremor, what is called involuntary tremor. And later on, you develop dementia, you develop a, a problem of taste, uh, smell, and this kind of thing. Those are advanced stages of the Parkinsonism. And this, uh, this Huntington is also very progressive, and it has also kind of at random jerky movement, and like in the face twitching type of movement. And they progress rapidly, and then people can't take even a glass of water and eventually they die. But this, this is a long-term death, does not occur quickly, and therefore it is a very, very terrible disease. But uh, important thing is that many factors, uh, the disease looks different, but some of the biochemical defects that are found in the brain is very similar. That causes damage to the various area of the brain is very similar. Right. Yeah, actually, I want to get to some of those similarities. But what's coming up for me right now is something that uh, has touched our family because my mother-in-law just died of multiple complications of multiple sclerosis. Uh, How closely is that related to these diseases? Uh, Because a lot of what you're describing, um, you know, the involuntary uh, movements or at least lack of control of of movement uh, and the not being able to even sip a glass of water, those types of things are coming up as uh, being very similar. How how closely is it related? Yeah, I think, you know, for example, you know, MS is a neuromuscular disease, but here is what causes all these kind of issues. Right. Uh, whether it's a genetics or what is acquired in case of Parkinsonism, increased production of free radicals yes. are the most important culprit and common to all these three diseases that you mentioned. And when nerve cell damage gets damaged by free radicals, they initiate inflammatory reactions mm-hmm. that cannot be healed. So then inflammation reaction has started producing a lot of toxic chemicals and that further damage. So there are two things. First, increased production of free radicals in the brain that then causes inflammation, which further produces damaging or harmful chemicals that will damage nerve cells. And third is, is a glutamate because Glutamate, as you know, is amino acids and it is a neurotransmitter. But if you release a lot of glutamate, you have a fear, you have anxiety. And that is, again, common to all these three diseases that you mentioned at the later stage of the development. Uh-huh. So, so, so it is very important to remember that these three diseases that you mentioned looks very different from the... Symptoms point well. In some symptoms are uh, clearly different. Some are very common. Yes. But the biochemical defects that initiate and promote these defects are very similar. Right. And therefore, if you can reduce these defects simultaneously, you can affect all these disease processes. And not only that, in in terms of prevention but also in combination 
with a standard care that is given to all these people, you can improve their effectiveness and prolong their effectiveness, not only effectiveness, but prolong the effectiveness. And the reason it is very important that even though, like in Huntington, Korea, or say in Parkinson's disease, some 10% of the Parkinson's disease is also inherited from parent, but 90% are acquired. But right. those who those who inherited from a parent, whether it is a, a, a Huntington disease or the um, Parkinson's disease, if you measure the individuals who have not developed the disease but had a parent had it, but they have not developed any symptoms of the disease, when they analyzed their blood, they found that the level of free radical damage was much higher, level of inflammation was much higher. So even the asymptomatic individuals who have not developed this, uh, the symptoms but carrying the defective or mutated genes of their parent, you can see that they also have a increased free radical production and increased inflammation. So if you can prevent in, in those people, whether it's any Huntington or, or Parkinsonian, you can delay the onset or prevent the onset of the symptom of the disease for a longer period of time. Generally, genetic disease, which you inherited from parent, appear around 35 to 45 years of age. Okay. So, so this is very important to remember that many of these diseases, biochemical defect are very similar, except they affect different parts of your brain. Right. And, and what I like about what you're saying is that it's basically it's not a death sentence uh, no. because uh, there's too much focus, in my opinion, in mainstream medicine where they say your mother had breast cancer. You're going to have breast cancer. Exactly. So, you know, and this type of thing. So, you know, your parents have it. You're going to manifest. And they, it's almost like they try to rig it so that no matter what, you're going to end up with it. And in fact, there are strategies that we can take. Now, you talked about the excitatory uh, effect of glutamate. Uh, explain the relationship between glutamate or glutamic acid and GABA. Yeah. It is, you know, they, they have a positive function. Glutamate is an excitatory neuron. It excites, right. it creates anxiety, creates fear. And GABA is the inhibitory transmitters. So it, it inhibits the effects of glutamate. So if your glut, glutamate is being re released in excessive amount, and say at the same time, GABA is also released at the same time, they can block the action of glutamate. So they generally they balance each other so that your you know your neurological function maintains normally don't get excited and, uh, and that's why in many diseases especially the people who have anxiety disorder like in a, for example in PTSD one of the treatment is that they give a anti-glutamate antagonistic as a treatment but of course they are very toxic but I will tell later on that there are nutrients which can prevent the release of glutamate as well as their toxicity. And so, so th those are very important issues. But that's the main difference is that one is excite, excites the, creates excitement, another is inhibitory, they calm down, so they balance the function of each other and therefore you remain stable. 
So, so would you say that uh, glutamate is equivalent to uh, what might be going on with someone who has a very type A personality? They need to control everything and they're very tense all the time. Yeah, intensity, intensity, yeah, it could be a little bit fighting more glutamate. Yeah. I, I don't know. But a personality A could be different, but, you know, people who are anxiety right. type of people who get right. anxious easily, you know. Uh, they they are the one most uh, most uh, culprit in terms of more susceptible to a glutamate type of excessive release, and right. then you know and 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 then when the uh, they calm down, that means uh, the GABA is released and they balance it out. Right. But in chronic diseases, you know, they keep going. The GABA is also downregulated. You know, gets re- decreased, and therefore. Uh, the glutamate has a free hand in terms of creating anxiety, fear, and uh, and, and and damage to the nerve cell. Right. Well, one of the one of the reasons I asked that is uh, because one of the the guests that we have coming up in a few weeks is uh, uh, Julia Ross, who wrote the Mood Cure and the Diet Cure, and she mm-hmm. talks about uh, uh, when she first got her experience of. Someone coming in, I, I want to say it was a couple that came into her office and one was really tense and the other one was really relaxed. And she gave them each, you know, the opposite of what they were. And the one who took the GABA was like calm by the time he left. And <laughs> the other one was a little more energetic and, and focused uh, when when they left. Uh, so, um, you know, we'll, people might be interested in listening to that in a few weeks. But uh, you, you talk about the fact that neither of these cross the blood brain barrier. This yes. is something we we hear about a lot, but I'm not sure that that many people really understand what the blood brain barrier is and what that what's the significance is of these two amino acids not crossing that barrier. Yeah, this is this is a we don't know why it is not the case, but you know, blood brain barriers is is in a way to protect your brain from exogenous toxic chemicals that might go. So it acts as a, like a skin in your hand, okay. protects your body, and so blood-brain barrier is analogous to a skin okay. that filter out any bad stuff. But GABA is a molecule that they, they cannot, for some reason, they cannot, uh, uh, they don't know why, they can't cross the blood-brain barrier. Therefore, GABA supplement, what they do it, they use a, a, a precursor like drug, stimulate the receptor of GABA. These are all pharmacological, you know, drug type of things they use for the treatment of, say, for example, um, anxiety disorder. And, uh, and, uh, but that is very also toxic. The, all these medications that will elevate the brain level of, say, uh, GABA or decrease the brain level of glutamate, uh, they are very toxic. They have a side effect, but they, you know, doctor try treat in a way that had minimal toxicity. But I will tell you some more non-toxic way of doing it. Uh, but people are not paying attention to, uh, you know. And we were telling the story of uh, medical establishment. They are afraid of word uh, micronutrient or antioxidant. It is. It is very surprising. Right, right, absolutely, and and I over the years I have uh, seen doctors who really they and it's really out of their fear because they haven't been trained they don't know what what these yeah. nutrients are uh, but they exactly. actually will tell 
patience. You don't want to do that. You don't know what you're going to get. And that's actually a lot of the, the story that my mother-in-law got from her doctors. Uh, and this was just, and we're just talking about moving from boxed food to real food. And they were scaring her from, from eating food that had not been processed in a can or a box. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think one story probably maybe, maybe you already maybe know uh, how the uh, sometimes advancement of science is delayed by the medical establishment. Uh, and one story was that the, uh, uh, that I think I have written in the book, but uh, that the, uh, you know, in early 15th or 16th century, when the uh, people used to come to explore this side of the ocean by ship, and the crews used to get a sick and the skin, all kind of a skin disease. So one of the ship, uh, captain of the French ship, landed, had a terrible skin lesions, a skin disease, and he could not, you know, just tolerate it. So he landed in Canada and went to the native Indian, it is, you remember, 1500th century, native Indian doctor. And native Indian doctor gave the, uh, uh, the juice uh, or extract of the uh, spruce tree, spines of the spru- spruce tree. Yes, like the sap. Yeah, like sap, yeah. And his, uh, his, uh, his uh, disease was cured. Right. So he was very excited. He went back to France and started saying that I have brought this uh, juice uh, that can cure all the skin disease of the sailor and we will not have any skin disease. So the French establishment said, no, no, you brought this thing from a savages. We don't believe in any of those things. And turned out that juice was very rich in uh, vitamin C. Exactly. But uh, it took about 300 that a skin disease at that time, what we call now a scurvy. Exactly. Would have been cured 300 years earlier if the French establishment would have promoted that and then discovery of vitamin C would have been much earlier than in, say, in the late 90s <laughs> or early 90s. So, so there are many examples of like that, that how establishment don't want to believe which makes sense and which is like almost like a common sense. But it, it, it is a story that I have to fight all my years. And then we have some success, you know. Right. So tell me about that, because uh, one of the the things that you talk about is basically the piss poor levels of 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 uh, antioxidants that are being used in clinical trials, because uh, we, we we love to turn on the news. Right. We love to turn on the news and oh, vitamin E doesn't work. It might actually be dangerous for people with this or that disease. And we, you know, don't take vitamin A and they kind of. Yeah. They promote these uh, these like one shot solutions because, of course, your body is completely breaking down because there's only one thing missing. You know, <laughs> there's only yeah, exactly, there's, only, there's exactly. only one nutrient, and that's going to f- miraculously fix everything. Here, here is the thing that if you give this question, yeah, and I will give you one study examples, and then I will give you my own views. One, if you give these three things to a high school, senior high school, junior high school kid. They will say, don't do the experiment. For example, you remember the trial that was done in Harvard with beta keratin alone? I vaguely remember that one. I know they've, they've done a lot of very suspect uh, studies at yeah. Harvard. Yeah, beta keratin alone was given to a heavy smoker. Mm. Oh, yeah, and I do they, remember this. Yeah. 
they wanted to see if beta carotene reduced the risk of lung cancer. And, uh, and the uh, idea was that beta carotene was in the experimental system, an human model system, not among a smoker, so some evidence that might reduce the risk of cancer. But human is different that, you know, we have cured many diseases in rat and mice, exactly. but when it comes to human, that is much more complex. But anyway, so here is the issue. If you tell the students that the uh, heavier smoker have a high oxidative environment in their body, in other words, they are producing a lot of free radical in the body, and they have been measured, and many papers have been published to support that. That's one. Second, if you tell them that beta carotene or any individual vitamin, vitamin E or beta carotene, say in this case, beta carotene, beta carotene, when, when beta carotene is exposed to high oxidative environment, like in a, in a heavier smoker, they get oxidized, very well known, quickly oxidized. Then they act as a pro-oxidant, like free radicals, rather than as an antioxidant. Then they will say, would you like to start that experiment? They will say, no, because you will have a positive effect. Beta carotene, instead of acting as an antioxidant, will act as a free radicals or pro-oxidant, and that will increase the risk of lung cancer. And in these, this is what they found. They found that beta carotene supplementation alone increased the risk of lung cancer by 17%. And wow. there was huge publicity that don't take beta carotene. Most of the chronic diseases that we have, whether it's a Parkinson's or a Alzheimer or a Huntington, they have a high internally in, inside the body a lot of free radicals are produced, a lot of inflammation are being produced. And under that kind of condition, if you just give one antioxidant, any beta carotene or vitamin E is not going to work. Right. Right, exactly. And, and uh, you know, this is one thing that I see constantly with people. They, uh, they've got a bunch of stuff going on with them. And even if they don't have something that, that looks as, let's just call it scary uh, or, or intense, let's say, uh, as, as a Parkinson's or a Huntington's disease, they will they'll just scour, they'll scour the Internet and then they'll find that beta carotene. You know, we're just going to stick with that, that uh, example. And they'll try it and then they'll come back and they'll say, oh, you know, my symptoms got worse and I'm thinking to myself, how can you possibly think that it's only that one thing that you have to do? Yeah, exactly. uh, and exactly. what's what's even more baffling is that some of these people will take 10 medications, but when yeah, it comes yeah. to supplements, they're like, oh, well, you know, I want to get it from real food. And not that they're even eating real food. You know, they're, well, most of them aren't eating real food, but when they, exactly. but, but they're very resistant to the therapies that actually might build the body up versus, uh, the, these drugs that really are just trying to minimize symptoms. And sometimes they're, they're minimizing symptoms by sacrificing other systems in the body. Exactly. That's correct. Here, here is the concept that I have been pushing for the last few years. For example, and again, this, this makes it common sense if you look at it. Our body has a defense system against free radicals, inflammation. We have two components, two parts of defense system our body has. One is called antioxidant enzymes, for mm -hmm. example, catalase, superoxide dismutase, 
okay. uh, glutathione peroxidase, antioxidant enzymes. They protect against free radical damage. That's one. Second thing is we have also antioxidant that we take from the diet. Right. For example, A, C, E, you know, dietary. And third is that some antioxidant we made ourselves. For example, glutathione, our body makes it. Exactly. carnitine our body makes it. Coenzyme Q10, our body makes it. And, and when oxidative stress occurs in your body, producing a lot of free radicals, a lot of inflammation, not only antioxidant enzyme goes down, but also antioxidant that we take from the diet goes down, antioxidant that we make in our body goes down. Right. So, so the question is that in order to have an optimal reduction in oxidative damage as well as in inflammation, one has to increase the level of antioxidant enzymes as well as diet antioxidant, as well as endogenous or body-made antioxidant at the same time. Yes. You have to increase at the same time in order to have a decent effect for whatever your optimal health, your immune system, you know, your you know, disease, whatever the, your health condition is. But if you just elevate antioxidant enzymes, but ignore the other one, it is not going to work. If you just elevate a dietary antioxidant and say it is not going to do the job. So one can say that we can, well, you know, by supplementation, you can easily buy these things or, or make a formulation of these things that have an antioxidant that we take from the diet and antioxidant that we take uh, from the, uh, that our body makes it. But how, how do you increase the level of antioxidant enzymes? The one way is normally in our body, like when we do aerobic exercise or any kind of exercise, then there is a, uh, there is a um, what is called a nuclear transcription factor called NRF2, N-R-F2, okay. NRF2. This NRF2 when, when require free radicals to activate it. And once this gets activated, then it goes to the nucleus and bind with some another uh, protein there and elevate the antioxidant enzymes. So mm. normally if you are a healthy person, then nerve to get, anytime you have a little bit extra uh, free radicals, they get activated, antioxidant enzymes goes up, it takes care of that. And at that time, you know, short term, your, your the level of uh, uh, dietary and endogenous or body-made antioxidants are not down. So this is okay. But what happens when you have a disease like Parkinsonism or Alzheimer's or, 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 or any, uh, any disease you take it, chronic diseases, neurological diseases, they don't respond to free radicals. They don't respond to uh, oxygen. Nectar becomes inactive. So okay. you have to find out some way to activate that. Otherwise, you are not going to increase the antioxidant enzyme, and that is very important in order to reduce the oxidative stress. Right. But many people have now have done a lot of research showing that certain antioxidant, you know, only thing we know about antioxidant, it destroys free radical, which is true. But antioxidant can also activate nerve to without the need for free radicals. It just activated. I see. And therefore, 
it is that, that that's why it is very important that if in order to have a reduction in your uh, oxidative damage and inflammation you have to have a micronutrient preparations which can do both it can increase the antioxidant enzymes by activating nerve 2 as well as enhance the level of dietary and body made antioxidant at the same time mm-hmm. so this is extremely important then there is another issue of glutamate how you what how you take care of glutamate also you have to take care of glutamate as well now some research data shows that that the, uh, the vitamin b is extremely important and certain antioxidant like coenzyme q10 and vitamin e they will not only prevent the release of the glutamate excessive release but also if some glutamate have been accumulated in the brain and then they will cause toxicity they will prevent the toxicity of glutamate so it has a double function mm. so if you have a, a combination it has very double function namely that that it prevents the release as well as prevents the toxic effect of glutamate on the nerve cell i mean if you put all this together this looks like a very common sense to try right for your health or you know for for disease prevention or or any you know we are not questioning the standard care we are simply saying if you combine this with your standard care then it will be very nice to have right then the, the patient outcomes are possibly going to be better. enhanced because uh because you're you're actually uh addressing the foundational level that's right because most of the drugs prescription drugs are developed based on the symptoms of the disease not the causes of the disease right and therefore what happens for example take the example of a parkinson disease the classical or gold therapy is called dopa therapy right to, for the dopamine levels to, to increase the dopamine level that's a standard treatment but what happens this treatment relies that your dopamine neuron has to be alive in the brain otherwise dopa would not get converted to dopamine and it would not work but you are not, dopa cannot prevent the causes of the death of the nerve cell for example it does not affect free radicals or damage it does not affect chronic inflammation it does not affect glutamate and these are the major reasons why dopamine dopamine neurons are dying so what happens consequently dopa therapy will be like magic for 5 years 6 years and then patient becomes worst right and because because the dopa neurons are dying once the neurons are going to die is not there dopa cannot work at, at that point actually dopa becomes very bad because dopa will get oxidized and generates excessive amount of free radicals that's how you see many parkinson patients at the end of dopa therapy after 5 or 10 years um, generally average is 5 years and they become worst their symptom becomes terrible right and 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 so if you combine with this kind of approach micronutrient approach with dopa therapy then neuron will be alive dopamine neuron will be alive for longer period of time and therefore dopa therapy will work for longer time without causing any side effects 
Right, right. See, two things come to mind while you're talking here. Uh, first is there seems to be a similarity, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, between what you're discussing and what maybe mo- more people are more uh, not comfortable, but uh, uh, have more experience with or know a little bit more about, which might be insulin levels, mm-hmm. where uh, the pancreas eventually gets exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it keeps up this this charade and then it gets exhausted and it just can't pr- produce the enzymes needed to to do its job properly. Right. And that's mm-hmm. when you, you start getting into these diabetic states. Yeah. The, the other thing is that what you're what I'm understanding you are saying is that and this is what I've often believed about a lot of these conditions is that you can do the conventional therapy to make the patient feel comfortable yeah. But in the meantime, you address that underlying thing that will give you the longer term results that you want and, and possibly even heal the person to a, a state where they're, uh, not, no longer dependent upon the symptomatic therapy or exactly. at least, or at least they don't have to take it as often. Yeah. I think, I think that's very important. You mentioned the, you know, in diabetes cases, again, or if you look at the literatures, all the diabetic-related complications, neuropathy, nephropathy, you know, kidney damage, this limb, uh, all these things are related to oxidative damage and inflammation. Exactly. And none of the drugs, including insulin, and, and, and the cell, I will tell you, none of the drugs that they use to control glucose level has any effect either in free, on the level of free radicals or on the level of inflammation. So by controlling glucose, the rate of the progression of the disease slows down, but not completely blocked. Eventually they go become resistant and so on and so forth. But if, and, and there are several, in my experience, that one of the company that is marketing a product uh, that I developed, and they say that uh, some people were, who were on a four or five, diabetic medications and when they took it and after three months six months they started the doctor started reducing their medication dose and finally they are on a very small amount of diabetic medication like insulin and so so again this is very important that if you control these oxidative damage if you control inflammations you can improve the diabetic situation remarkably remarkably well because, for example, in, in a type 2 diabetes, you know, insulin are being produced, but insulin becomes resistance. Exactly, because, because you're exhausting the cells. And, and it seems yeah. that all of the therapies that, they, that they're that uh, giving to people are focusing on that, that last stage where yeah, the, the yeah. cells are already working as hard as they can to keep you alive. And they're yeah. really just addressing that, that what, you know, the dopamine or the insulin at the end. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, you know, like we said before, you know, working from the ground up. So it's so you're really just just making the cells more and more tired because you're trying to. It's almost like they're trying to force them to uptake the nutrients yeah. that they're just like. Look, if I could take it, yeah. I would make it. For crying out loud! <laughs> Don't. Yeah. For example, in case of insulin, you have a cell, you have insulin receptor, and they get receptors a protein. They get damaged by free radicals. So cell says, I can't pick up, you, no matter how much insulin give me, I, I don't have a way to pick up. Right. But you prevent the damage and, the, you know, 
And if you reduce the oxidative damage and receptors are new receptors are being formed, so maybe when now new receptor comes, insulin receptor, they don't get damaged and then you will improve it. So there's a lot of science behind these kind of approaches that if you can reduce uh, oxidative damage and inflammation, you can have a very good health, even healthy aging, what I call, uh, with a minimal uh, type of uh, discomfort uh, while you are growing. Right. What I'm wondering is, do you need any clarification on the relationship between like what oxidative stress means and like the relationship between that and oxygen? Yes, sir, please. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm thinking of oxidation as rust. Right, right. It is rust. But, but you know, what happens, you know, for example, you know, uh, oxygen obviously is very important for you. But when you use even normally what we breathe oxygen from the air, it has so much, and, and, and then brain, brain uses in all our body, but brain uses proportionally 25% of respired, but your oxygen you breathe, 25% is used by brain, even though it represents only 5% of the body weight. So proportionally, it uses a lot of oxygen. And while doing so, because an oxygen is needed to generate energy, by the mitochondria, which generates energy. And it uses so much oxygen, you just absorb so much oxygen, that 2% of the oxygen that it takes leaks out and generates extensive amount of free radicals. And when we, when we say oxidative damage or oxidative stress, it implies that the amounts of free radicals that are being produced are much more then your own antioxidant defense system can handle it. So it surpasses that. And that's why we suffer oxidative damage. So brain is exposed to very high level of uh, free radicals every day. And some people have estimated that normally after the age of 20 years, we, we lose normally about 1,000 nerve cell every minute. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm doomed. <laughs> and, and, and no, I'll give you some good news. This, this explains then, a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think this explains Homer Simpson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and brain has about a billion neurons. However, brain has developed a functional plasticity. In other words, you have to lose 70% of the neuron before any clinical symptoms of a disease appears. So brain can function normally with a fewer neuron. So that is a good news. And maybe that's why, you know, and an interesting thing is that the, if the brain is producing so much free radicals, you would have thought that nature would have provided a high level of antioxidant in the brain. Opposite is true. Brain has the lowest level of antioxidant protection against free radicals. On the top of that, brain has the highest level of unsaturated fatty acids, which are easily damaged by free radicals. So brain has all the things against it. Why? 
Okay, why do you think that's that's true? Because I've always heard that there's a higher percentage of cholesterol and um, saturated fats. Saturated fatty acids. I'm talking about unsaturated fats. Right, yeah, I know, but you said it's got the highest level. Highest level, yeah. Cholesterol is also part of the, you know, part of the membrane. Right. But if you take a total uh, fatty acid, measure it, then the unsaturated fatty acid is the highest level. Why do you think that, it, how how does that help us evolutionarily? Like, what what do you think? Well, I mean, what do you think God was saying when He did that? <laughs> the membrane structure, you know, it has what one trillions of synapses, right. which are all membrane structure, really, to communicate with various uh, part of the brain. I mean, that's very good questions. You know, evolutionary, I uh, think uh, we developed these things because we needed much more synapses. We and as you know, synapses is very important to have a um, you know. Uh, to st- store in the memory and uh, communication and all kind of things that synapse does. But, but, and so for having a number of synapse so many, we needed it in order to think, you know, uh, process it, information, think and express and so on. And maybe that's the reason we have so much um, um, unsaturated fatty acid and some saturated fatty acid too. Cholesterol is extremely important for brain function. Right. Uh, Some place in epidemiology studies showed that people who have extremely low cholesterol, they can become violent. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I see that actually quite a bit. Now, you know, when I opened up the show, I talked about uh, these people who come to me and they're, they're, they've got the tremors and they, they love their unsaturated oils you know they're in particular yeah. their olive oil and they're like oh i just i use it on everything and they eat it you know most of them actually are uh vegetarian and you know on a super low fat diet and a little bit of fat that they actually get is usually from olive oil uh they eat a high fiber diet which is something that you do recommend but i'm finding yes. that this this seems to be the norm of the people who have in my experience i'm just talking about the people who talk to yeah. me um who who have parkinson's What's the like? What's what's your olive rationale? Oil, like, what sur- do you see? I, I'm surprised that olive oil will do it because generally olive oil is at least uh, some of the published paper is is supposed to be good for you uh, because it's unsaturated nature. Right. And and but again, you know, if you use excessive amount of anything, you go extreme, then you have a problem. Yeah, especially with Parkinsonism, for example, you know. Uh, excessive exposure to pesticides, uh, herbicides, fungicides that we uh, spray in our yards, and a, and a certain solvent. And uh, another is a recreational drug. There is a, a chemical called MPTP, is a big name, but this is impurity in a recreational drug that people use it, and mm-hmm. that can cause. Parkinson's disease as well. Right. This is a good chance for me um, to cut in, all right? So okay. yes. between you two big bullies, there's nothing <laughs> that I can really say, but uh, here and there uh, about the olive oil. So um, I live in the Mediterranean, and uh, yeah. the olive oil is, of course, naturally a staple here. But yes. there is a very big... Um, I must say there's a very big difference between uh, the countries that I had the chance to see the, the, the process. 
mm-hmm. because the use of the pesticides here is not uh, it's not you know natural for us it's not um, yeah. something that we tend to do we leave our uh, olives un- untouched and uh, without any chemicals uh, and th- I-, I tasted some various sorts and various brands of oil you know that you can buy on stores just for sample purposes right mm-hmm. and also various um, samples from our homemade uh, manufacturers so uh, in here it's like a tradition you have every uh, household that makes its own olive oil and the difference is you know like night and day you can't mm. taste anything in there but pure olive and it's completely 100% pesticides free. So I'm thinking it, it might also have, uh, you know, a relationship with um, these pesticides. Maybe these pesticides are somewhat degenerating the the, the whole uh, health factor. Well, first of all, can you ship me a case of that? <laughs> hook, hook a sister sure. up, okay? I want you to ship me a case. I'll pay for it. But seriously, um, uh, you know, this is actually something that I was, that has uh, crossed my mind as well, which is there's a huge issue with adulteration of olive oil. So yeah, I think that's here, a good point that Nicholas made that could be, you know, pesticide exposed and, and pesticide do not de- degrade it very biologically speaking. They stayed there, and that's one of the risk factors in the Parkinson's disease, or tremor. Right. And well, what I was going to say is that we have an issue here where a lot of it's being cut and diluted, and this happens in Italy as yeah. well, uh, where yeah, they're, they're yeah, cutting it with, uh, with synthetic vegetable oils, particularly canola oil, uh, yeah, which yeah. is, you know, in the U.S., we consider that to be this godsend, and, and more restaurants use that than they do olive oil. Even when they say they're using olive oil, they're still using like a, a 50-50, and that may have already been cut back you know in italy uh so um i don't know that spanish olive oil has same the same issue with contamination or or um you know kind of let uh making a cheaper quality uh but it does seem to be a huge problem in italy to the point that they've uh, they've uh actually uh appointed the carabinieri the uh it's like the meter maids basically (laughs) yeah they're part of the police force (laughs) and and one of their jobs is to go around smelling olive oil for for quality actually i cook uh, my indian dishes in uh, olive oil i don't know how good they are but you know (laughs) the whole food store and uh, so why don't you use ghee why don't you use ghee or coconut oil because i i just made ghee i can make ghee you can make ghee saturated fat so ghee i use only in a dal or something right okay i see what you're saying yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, you know, one of the things that we're fortunate enough to have here in the islands is magnet oil. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yes. yes. So, so I've been, Hawaii, I've been using that. <laughs> well, come and see me sometime. Not, not to sound like Mae West, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will. I will give you a call. Great. Um, okay. So tell me, is, are antioxidants always good? Or are there no, times where you is, want... It is always, but here, when you, when you go and select antioxidant, many of the uh, micro uh, preparation of the antioxidant have a iron. Okay. You see iron, copper, manganese. These three minerals are absolutely essential for your health. Yes. But slight excess can increase the risk of almost all chronic diseases, including Parkinson's disease. Uh-huh. 
And, and, and the reason is because when iron or copper or manganese combined with vitamin C, it generates a lot of free radicals. Mm. Did you know that? I mean, this is well, you know, I mean, this is, as a matter of fact, if you want to study the effect of pure free radicals on a biological system, the one and only way is to add in your test tube iron and vitamin C solution and your target tissue, whatever you are measuring. Mm. Pure free radicals. Many agents will produce free radicals, but that's not a pure. There are some other things they produce too. But this is the only way. And in the presence of a, a antioxidant, iron is absorbed much better or copper is absorbed much better. I see. For example, and, and then it will increase the iron store or copper store in your body. And that will cause all kinds of chronic diseases. Like iron has been known to cause excessive iron in a, a Parkinson's disease. Uh, um, copper has been implicated to, uh, in a Alzheimer's disease. And so these things, why you will take in a multiple vitamin preparation that you are taking, you should not take iron, copper, or manganese if it is there. Second very important thing to remember is the, uh, is the they, sometimes they add also, not sometimes, most often they add uh, heavy metal like vanadium, zirconium, yes. molybdenum. They have no use in the body. And body has no mechanism of excretion of heavy metal or for that matter, iron, copper, or manganese. So they accumulate. Right. And heavy metal over long-term period, if you are going to take vitamin every day, over long-term period, it is neurotoxic. Mm-hmm. So why you will take this kind of stuff? Right. Oh, so anything about Black Sabbath or Iron Maiden, <laughs> something like that? <laughs> <laughs> Any words on these two? Yeah, well, we'll have to get them on the show to defend their end yeah. of the argument. Um, <laughs> but what, what I'm actually asking about here with the antioxidants is that um, my understanding, for example, with a condition like Candida albicans, uh, that you should be, which is considered anaerobic bacteria. I had learned to dose antioxidants separate from the candida elimination periods. So in other words, when you're dosing things that will help eliminate and excrete the candida to time it so that you're doing it away from the antioxidant consumption. Is that something that that has crossed your path that there's certain times where antioxidants maybe don't fit you know within a particular therapy no i think it doesn't make difference you know as long as you are taking for example any multiple vitamin you take it and if you take it twice a day and other medication you can take any time right but uh, but i don't know whether there is interaction between the two Okay. And, and the reason we say that take it twice, any any kind of multiple vitamin, because the biological half-life in the blood is varies depending upon whether it is a fat-soluble or water-soluble. Yes. It varies. The rate of elimination from your body varies. And what we have demonstrated when I was at the University of Colorado Medical School doing research was that the if you just vary the two-fold difference in the antioxidant component, the genetic activity alters dramatically. So if you are taking only once a day in the morning, by evening, more than half of them is gone. Next morning, another half is gone. Right. And so she changed the genetic activity, same, 
will be constantly trying to meet the requirement of the level. So in order to maintain the steady level so that your cell doesn't have to worry about changing the genetic activity that rapidly, we recommend that you take twice a day. Okay. Half in the morning, same total dose, half in the evening. Right. And, and so, but most of the antioxidant really, uh, Adrian, is very non-toxic except for, for example, uh, vitamin A. Vitamin A is, is a, say, 3,000 to 5,000 is recommended. Nowadays, they recommend 3,000 international unit per day. But if you take a 10,000, just double the amount, roughly, uh, then uh, in a pregnant woman, it can cause birth defect. Uh, in older individual, it can cause osteoporosis. Right. So the safety window for vitamin A is very narrow. Mm-hmm. And so is it for selenium. Right. Uh, but the rest of the antioxidant or vitamin B, there is no toxicity. Oh, in vitamin B6 is another, another thing that many people use, uh, like uh, they call it a stress tablet. Right. Uh, they have a all vitamin, uh, B vitamin, only B vitamin, 50 milligram or more. And, uh, and uh, what they have shown, and some people came to me with that condition uh, for consultation, is that if vitamin B6, if you take a 50 milligram or more, after a certain time, you can develop a, what is called a peripheral neuropathy, which mm. is numbness of extremities. Right. And that, and that is reversible once you are stopping. Mm, right, right. Yeah, a lot of these, especially with the water-soluble v- vitamins, uh, will reverse if you stop the, the therapy, if yeah, you've gone yeah. overboard. Um, yeah, actually, exactly. you, you brought up uh, manganese. And are you yeah. are you aware of the studies that uh, Mark Purdy had done in England on um, on BSE? No. Okay. He was a he was an organic farmer, and he uh, his his path was that there was a an issue with warble fly, which lives in the stomach of cattle. And so the, the this is my understanding, at, at least. And you can Google his name: P U R D Y Purdy. Uh, but basically, he he they were. Uh, requiring all farmers in the UK to put this organophosphate at almost like a lotion on the back of the cattle. And he and the other organic farmers said, no, we can't do that because then we can't be organic. And so they went to court, fought for their right to not have to put it because their, their herds were not in danger of this warble fly. Uh, long story short, the cattle that did the organophosphate uh, did get BSE. The ones who didn't, didn't get BSE. Uh, as you know, BSE uh, is is a neurological disorder. And what ended up happening is he ended up going around the world, Japan, Czech Republic, all these different places, found out that he, he found manganese exposure as a common thread between all the different forms of BSE in other, in, you know, ca- cattle, deer, sheep, etc. And he was seeing that high manganese exposure was causing these neurological yeah. issues. But are these yeah. all just manifestations of Parkinson's that we're seeing varying? Neuro- neurological, you know, for, for, is, is a kind of Parkinsonism, may not be a classical in the animal. Exactly. Parkinson's disease appear different symptoms. But neurological manganese are not, for example, manganese minors who works with the men in his mind right. in Chile and other South American countries. And I don't know, in, in our country here, we have men in his minds. Maybe in old days we had. 
But anybody who works there, minor, they have very high incidence of Parkinson's disease. Right. And, uh, you know, actually, I remember um, Scrapey, I guess, is one of the names for it. And, and in Colorado here, what he found, they, they had a scare about deer having scrapie yeah. and what he found out when he went to to research it was that these so-called hunters uh they yeah. weren't they, they were kind of doing the dick cheney canned hunt right so they <laughs> they, they went out into yeah. in in you know out into nature but instead of just actually hunting they would put out these salt blocks that were high in manganese and yeah. the salt would attract the deer and they would be yeah. licking on it and that's when they would shoot them so yeah. um you know he's he he found that connection in all of these animals from chickens to, like I said, deer and sheep, et cetera, uh, throughout the world. So now you have a a section in your book about reducing the risk. Yes. And in addition to things like vitamin E and nuts and oils, many of which are are high in vitamin E, you also have cigarettes, ibuprofen and caffeine. (laughs) So, yeah. so should I, I mean, I've got a coffee. Should I just light up? <laughs> no, no, no. I, would okay. not, I, I wrote also that I would not recommend that. Okay. But there have been some epidemiology study. You know, epidemiology study, as you know, Adrian, is a survey type study. Right. I don't rely on that. And uh, there is no intervention study showing that these things work, either high level of caffeine or, or a, a, a the other thing, so I, I wouldn't recommend smoking. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I just know, but I can or, see some people saying like, "Well, you know, I, there's a risk of Parkinson's in my family." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have to smoke. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so we're not no, we're not no, going to no, rely have, on that. I have made a specific point that I would not recommend that, or you know, even though caffeine is a small amount of caffeine is important for you, but. Not the kind of five, six cup that people drink every day. Right, ex- exactly. Especially when they when they couple that with the fake creamer and and yeah, nine, yeah. nine teaspoons yeah. of sugar per sugar. cup. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. So, um, Nick, do you have any other questions? Wait, I'm still processing that coffee part. Will it kill me or not? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> just have one. <laughs> yes, you can have, I just have one. Nicholas, you, you can have a Nicholas few cups. No question. But don't take no. ten cups. Okay, but okay, okay. You know, actually, I have another question about the minerals because we already discussed that cer- certain minerals can be toxic. Are there any other minerals, or is it just you know, are, should we just not focus on supplementing minerals in these cases? Is it just the naturally occurring minerals in our yeah, water supply in our food? Exactly, I would not separate mineral at all. And uh, you know, anytime you have a little bit of salad, anything which grow under the ground, you know. People take something once a day, some salad or something, you know, even a few times a week. That's enough mineral for you. Okay, good to know. So what is a, a good game plan for someone who's getting, you know, they, they've got, whether it's the relative that they're taking care of. Uh, and actually, that's my, my bookkeeper. Her husband actually has Parkinson's. And this is this actually dovetails with her question that she has for you, uh, mm-hmm. which is um, she would simply like to know what type of diet he should be consuming. High protein. Are there any no-nos? We're leaning more no, towards convenience. No, protein is just the, just the, you know, balanced diet, you know, which is, uh, um, you know, low fat, high fiber diet, fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know. Meat, fish, whatever you like. You know, I don't too much restriction on diet except 
don't take high fat, high caloric diet. You know, right? Vegetarian could be high caloric diet too. It's, this is true too. And high caloric diet generates a lot of free radicals. Right, exactly. And uh, yeah, uh, the uh, last episode, we had a, a doctor of Chinese medicine, and we were talking about the fact that people who do slightly restrict their ca- their caloric intake uh, tend to have better life outcomes overall. Uh, yeah, yeah, and- slightly, because, you know, sometimes that restriction that people did in the animal study, uh, you know, like they really recommend 800 calories a day. No, that's ridiculous, day. yeah. Yeah, right. but, you know, but if you reduce, you just take a smaller amount. That, I mean, you know, you don't have to take big amount, you know. Right. And, 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 and but I don't, you know, have a meditation, relaxed lifestyle is very important. Do yoga. If he's <laughs> losing weight, he's slowly losing weight. Is that something that she should be concerned with? No, no. And I think if he has active Parkinson's disease, I would suggest some, you know, some multiple vitamins. I can I can send you a things that I think you should take it, okay, uh, by email through email. Okay, oh. and uh, and uh, and uh, and then uh, you know people who are taking that kind of a uh, program. Actually, my neighbor has a hair uh, Parkinson disease, and he's doing extremely well. That's that's fantastic. What is your number one tip for anyone who has either recently been diagnosed or yeah. otherwise, uh, you know, wants to have a better outcome? They don't want this to be a death sentence. They don't want uh, to have no hope. And, that, and I really think that's the that's the crux of what you're giving people here, which is hope to yeah. kind of, you know, do more than just let it ravage right. their bodies, but to really rail against it. Big, yeah. Take one multiple vitamins. In addition to that, take a curcumin, 100 milligram, resveratrol, 100 milligram, nicotinamide, okay. 100 milligram, coenzyme Q10, 50 milligram, and omega-3 fatty acid, 1,000 milligram. Wow. Okay. And I will send you the information to your email and in case other people ask, you can provide that information more specifically. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it available uh, for uh, people on our site. Uh, one of the things that I was going to say, the multivitamin, any particular, I mean, we know that the extra iron, for example, may not be good for a lot of these people. Right. Is there something, a, a particular? There is one company that, uh, that I, I developed a formulation for them. And their website is Engage Global, E-N-G-A-G-E, EngageGlobal.com. Okay. And they, they have a formulation called MMF. In short, it is called Military Micronutrient Formulation that we tested in Marine Corps and uh, Marines in training and so on. All right. Fantastic. That's uh, thank you so so much for that information, because I think that will uh, give people a, a good place to start uh, because yes. uh, they, they there are a lot of these conditions that many of us just are, are led to believe that it's hopeless and that we can't do anything. And, you know, to me, I'm, I'm the type of person who I would rather try and fail than to never have tried at all and, and live in regret. Me too. Me too. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for join, uh, joining us. Do you have a website now? Uh, no, I don't have my personal website, no. Well, you're going to have uh, to get one <laughs> and let us know about it. 
Yeah, maybe I will. I don't have personal website. Uh, uh, I, I will give you my email. You, you have my email, right? So Yes. And you know what? I just realized I did not tell people the name of your book. Can you uh, give everybody the name of your book so that um, they can? Yes. It's called Fight Parkinson's and Hunting Disease with Vitamins and Antioxidant. And it is available from Amazon.com. Fantastic. So that's uh, Fight Parkinson's and Huntington's Disease with Vitamins and Antioxidants. Fantastic. And this is available, as I said, you know, on Amazon.com. Well, Dr. Prasad, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for uh, enlightening us about this very, uh, very important topic. And I, I wish I had run across your work sooner. Although, like I said, my, my mother-in-law, poor thing, she was, she was uh, they quite literally scared the pants off of her um, as far as, as doing something more on the health side because they said, you don't know what you're going to get. And I'm like, you, yeah, you might get better, you know? You know like was, so, you know, it was, it was pretty tragic because she, she was never able to enjoy her grandchildren, for example, um, because she, she kind of went into essentially a vegetative state uh, a little over 10 years ago. Uh, mm. So, and then last year she, well, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately died uh, from, from the disease. So, um, but thank you so much for your contribution and uh, we really appreciate you being with us and uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show again. Thank you, Adrina. It's my pleasure. Thanks. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at NutritionHeretic.com where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at NutritionHeretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash NutritionHeretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks.